This is Adam Criscow. Oh, it's feeding back. <laughs> I'm going to keep Chris that now. Gow. This is Adam Criscow, and I'm Ben's guest on Big Fat Five. Perfect. Woo. You nailed it. You <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> what is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. This week's guest is, as you just heard, Adam Criscow. Adam is one of the go-to drummers in the live music scene. He's worked with Tegan and Sarah, Troy Savon, Sia, Weezer, John Schofield, Casey Musgraves, Brandon Flowers, Chaka Khan, LP, Dan Romer, Ingrid Michelson, and of course, many more. He also owns and operates Criscow Design, which is a high-end custom furniture company. Seriously, it's beautiful stuff. I'll drop a link to that website in the show notes, so please go check that out. Anyways, I've wanted to get Adam on the show for quite a while, and it seemed like a great time to do it since Stacy Jones spoke so highly of him last episode. And here we go. I hope you enjoyed the top five records that shaped Adam Criscow into the drummer he is today. Cheers. There have always been like very definitive moments on recording that have given me like inspiration to level up or inspiration to dig further. Essentially, I was able to kind of put it into my chronological order. So, you know, the very first, the middle, later stuff, post-college, it kind of stopped because you're limiting us, uh, Ben, to five. It kind <laughs> of stopped just, I think, just post-college for me. Uh, and obviously there's a ton of stuff since then that we just had to leave out, so. Well, the Big Fat 37 doesn't sound as good as Big <laughs> Fat <doesn't>. 5. No. <laughs> but um, when you just sit down behind a kit, what is usually the first beat you play? I, I Oh, that's a tough one. I would say it depends on what the kit sounds like, right? Mm. Like the, the, the musicality of what the drums sound like is going to inform what comes out. Sure. I, I probably will just sit down and hit, hit each drum or at least kick and snare once or twice on their own, just see what they do in the space. And then go from there. A lot of times, um, because I'm in the wood shop, I'll work most of the day, and then I'll come in here for like an hour at the end of the day and shed. And and lately, it's been going back to like earlier days where I just put my phone on shuffle and played along to whatever's coming, and and either create exercises out of that or just play along or try and mimic whatever's going on. So it it changes, but I would say like I usually let the drums do the talking and work around that. How are your drums set up now? I see a really pretty red kit in the background. What are they tuned yeah, to? Yeah, so I'm in a, I'm in a room uh, at at my woodshop where I share space with uh, some dear friends of mine who are also some of my heroes. Um, the red kit is Matt Musty's. Oh wow! Kit. Okay. Uh, Matt plays with Train. The blue kit is is my um, my pearl fiberglass kit that I just took out with Tegan and Sarah. Mm. But also Stacy Jones occupies that corner. Um, the Gretsch drums that are right behind me belong to Andrew Marshall with Billie Eilish, and Jordan West. I don't think she has any drums up here, but Jordan West plays with a country artist named Cam and plays with the band called Dressage. Um, and then to my left here is Jacob Schreiber's kit, and Jacob plays with a, an artist named Mothica. So it's it's kind of great because there's also three different kits that do three different things in here at any time so if you want to record you can you have a bunch of choices and it's a nice communal and i get to see everybody almost every day which is a lot of fun for me 
Yeah. Well, speaking of, you just said Stacy Jones. So he brought you up last week because this will be coming out uh, right after that last episode. Your name was also mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. I think a lot of those episodes might be somewhat archived now on bigfatsnerdrum.com. But when Clear Sound Baffles, I'll give a free shout out to them, was doing some advertising, we played your audio because you kind of did an ABA oh, live no. for them. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, no, yeah. It sounded good. <laughs> Thank you. But I basically <laughs> said out of Griscow. I think on 30 plus episodes. So, oh um, man, your well, name has been be said here. quite a bit. Thank you so much for having me, man. I, I, I've been listening. You, like I said, I've been listening for a couple months now. Finally digging in, and it's been really fun to just dig in. Everybody find the similarities, find stuff I haven't heard yet. Mm-hmm. It's been great. It's yeah, awesome. I'd have these conversations with drummers, and I do have these conversations with drummers, whether I'm recording or not. So, um, it's a very selfish endeavor, but I'm happy you're listening. So, thank you. But yeah. let's just hop into the first one. So this okay. one, you had to send me some some bootlegs. Um, so unfortunately for everyone listening, I can't give you a Spotify or Apple Music playlist, but just try and find these somewhere. Um, but the first album is uh, Chuck Loeb, Live at 7th Avenue South. Release year is between 1982 and 1984. The artist is, of course, Chuck Loeb. And it's an excerpt from the song Cookie, I would assume. Yep. And uh, yeah, take it away and then we'll listen to a little bit of it. Sure. So... Uh, you know, I have a very uh, fortunate upbringing in the fact that both my parents are musicians. Uh, my mom's a singer. My dad is a guitar player. And I got my first drum set at the age of three because I was, you know, breaking all the pots and pans in the house and there was no other choice, right? My dad was studying with Chuck Loeb at the time uh, when I was like three or four. He was also studying with John Schofield. And Damn. I lived just outside of New York City. It was like we were in Bergen County, New Jersey at the time. Um, and my dad would be going out to see shows just like we all do, you know, like two or three nights a week he would go and he had a Sony Walkman and he would bootleg virtually every show that he went to and would bring him back and then play the tapes for me. Um, and we'd listen and, and well, I talked to him yesterday about this as well. And he was saying that, you know, it probably also burned into my memory because he was transcribing these solos at the time. He was listening to them nonstop on repeat. So it was very much a part of the household and then there was one day when he went and see, saw Chuck and he came home and he said you hear this drummer he's 16 can you believe that and I was like what that's cool he's like yeah his name is Zach Danziger he's like this young up-and-coming kid and I said okay at the age of four I was like that's it that's what I want to do I want to be able to be that good by the time I'm 16 I just have to do this um there's also a, another famous story that, that my parents have told at nauseam but they took me to, it was my dad's birthday. They went to the Blue Note to go see Bobby McFerrin with John Schofield and Jack DeJanette was playing drums. And I was four and my dad introduced me to John that night. And, you know, John was really apparently very kind to me being like, what are you doing up so late, little guy? And blah, blah, blah. I ended up playing with John a few times uh, when I was in my mid twenties, played a couple small gigs with him. And it, it like, it just felt like such an incredible culmination of, of events from leading from that to this point. So my dad had these tapes. Most of the time, the drummers were Steve Ferroni, Peter Erskine, or Zach. Uh, I couldn't find any of the Zach stuff, but I did find this, this Steve tape. And I just think it's really cool because I think this is right around the era where Steve had left Average White Band and had moved to New York, I'm assuming. I don't know for sure. David Letterman had just started and Willie is the bass player on this. So all these guys were doing these sessions during the day or TV show tapings. 
and then they would go and play these like small nightclubs and I mean it was yeah it was the the foundation for me wanting to play music for sure all right well let's just play a little bit is do you want to play it at any certain time or just from the beginning um, I, I made a little edit for you so you can just hit play and play it as long as you want oh my god Adam yeah. here you go I just love that it's like, it's undeniably Steve's snare drum too. Yeah. As solid as hell. Like just little hints of early China symbol in there, maybe, maybe. Oh yeah. Lars got his over-the-bar line fills from this song, right? <laughs> I also think it's so fascinating, too, because Chuck is, like, really well-known in the smooth jazz scene, and this is not at all what you would think from smooth jazz, but it was just that yeah. era. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty heavy, and, and I mean, he's... My dad has like, I just got a digital converter, so we're converting all these old tapes, but he's got some incredible, like, he was just telling me the other night, he remembers seeing like Michael Brecker and Pat Metheny, and there was four people in the audience kind of thing, and it was just like an explosive evening, and so there's tons of that. I'm also, if anybody hears this and wants, you know, to hear some of these in in extended play, I'm happy to send them along, like, I don't know, I just feel like people should be able to hear these, there's no... We're not getting any money from it. I just, yeah, it's I, it's a really cool archival stash that we have, and I and I would love to share it with people. Are you guys going to make them public, or is just people want to reach out to you specifically? What what's the reasoning besides just the love of the game? That's a great, you know, like yeah, I, I feel like just reach out to me personally if you if you are interested in some of these tapes. Um, I feel like you know I, I can get deeper into this too, but predominantly I would consider myself more of a a documented drummer in the live setting. I don't have a lot of recording credits to my name, but I've toured a ton. You know, like the only recordings of me playing with Miley Cyrus are these like live Spotify sessions where we did a BBC session. The first record I have with Sia was a live record that we did in Australia. Same with Dispatch. Um, same with Troy Sivan. Like, it, it, it's interesting that like I've been so fascinated with live playing more so than recorded playing my entire life and that happens to be kind of the path that I'm on as well so like in the spirit of bootleg culture I think it's I don't know it's kind of fun to keep it inside the family and and you know like we'll get into um, some the later bootleg stuff but like once I got to college everybody at least in the jazz departments were just passing each other bootlegs left and right and that's how we were doing a, a lot of our learning because there are things that happen in live performances that were too long for uh, LPs back in the day and you get these rare images and, and views into performers that are otherwise stifled I think in a lot of the recording settings or at least in improvised music Alright well let's go to number two um, the album is Juju the release here is 1965 the artist is Wayne Shorter 
and the the leaf blower in the background is not <laughs> Wayne Shorter, but uh, the song choice is Juju, the titular track, and the yeah. drummer is Elvin Jones. Um, so yeah, take it away, and I'm going to mute myself again. So okay. there, there you go. <laughs> no um, I'm sure he's no stranger to the podcast. In fact, I know, like you know, I heard him on Sarb Singh's episode. Um, not surprised that he and I both share a deep love for this guy. Elvin was was the first time I felt like I heard a freight train in a jazz setting, uh, just kind of undeniable force and power. Um, and Juju specifically is the first time that I I heard. Uh, him playing and and was just kind of like, what is going on? How is he producing that much force and that much sound? And then also his ability to to waver between triplet and straight eighth in this really stood out to me, um, as well as his seeming seemingly not consistent but actually consistent hi hat pattern in his left foot. All right, here we go. Here's Juju. I've tried for years and I, I can't get that left foot happening like that. I think too, like this, the, the exploration and dissonance led me down a path in high school of enjoying like the hardcore scene. I know it's like a very weird line to draw, but this this track, especially like when Wayne comes in at the top, it's 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 like powerful and dissonant and and you know strong. And I think Elvin kind of supporting that. McCoy in his left hand playing a lot of dissonance too, and everybody kind of folding it around that. I mean, it's it's akin to a, a breakdown in the hardcore scene. If you want to draw that parallel, like it's it's definitely there. You know, strong beat one. Like everybody knows what that feels like. Everybody responds to that. It's the same thing, I think. Yeah, absolutely, no denying. Hey, y'all! I wanted to. <laughs> I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. 
And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye all right, so I got to overdub all this stuff. It's so funny. They were like doing leaf blowing at like nine, and I was like, "This is great," because they just do it randomly throughout the week. Of and course, I think it's after the rain. There's just all this leaves all over the place. So, um, but I'll just pretend like this is going to be live. So, number three, yeah. the album is "The Coming." The release year is 1996. The artist is Busta Rhymes. I love that this is a choice. Song choice um, is Still Shining. And the drummer, it was programmed by JD. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, as, as much as I'm a drum nerd, as much as I like dissecting live drummers, they're, they're, I can't deny the influence that listening to mid and early 90s hip hop had on my playing. I've spent hours playing along to all those records. I went to a performing arts high school uh, for junior and senior year in Hartford, Connecticut, and it was a jazz focus, but it was the first time that I was, you know, not, I grew up in the woods in Connecticut uh, after New Jersey, and, you know, it was like, it was your average, your average pop and rock radio listening for the most part. I listened to a bunch of Corn and Limp Biscuit and, you know, Leonard Skinner and Dave Matthews was in there. But then when I got to this this performing arts high school, there was a lot of kids listening to a lot of hip hop, you know, like fell in love with the oddity that is Old Dirty Bastard. And Buster Rhymes, I think, in his own right, is is a drummer, you know, like his, his syncopated approach for me really changed things, especially the programming on this track, too. I know a lot of people point to Dilla, but this like this programming to me feels like a real drummer. It, it moves around. Um, the chordal language is is jazz in nature, and and for whatever reason, this track like I would I've gone back to this track a million times. I can't play this feel. I wish I could. Um, it's it's cool. All right, here we go. The song still shining. Style, I can defy with your own profile. Uh, uh, Nigga, 
niggas don't understand what we be talking about. Design especially for biters who try to figure it out. I mean, he's a drummer. Like he's a he's a drummer in his deliverance. Also, that phrase is over the bar line. It's just like, it's just endlessly dissectable the same way any Bonham is, the same way, you know, like any Picaro is. It's just like, I just keep wanting to dig in and learn more. I, I also feel like JD did such an awesome job of programming around the vocals. I, I wonder if, if he laid down his vocal first and then they went back and reprogrammed or if they worked in tandem together. Are, do, I mean, do you do you enjoy programming? Is that something you're hired to do a lot uh, with soundtracks and whatnot, or is that not a forte of yours? I would say it's not a forte of mine. I mean, it, yeah, like my, I would say my favorite moments in studio are are people or engineers just applying tons of effects onto the drums to make them not sound like drums. Once again, approaching the drums as a fresh instrument and not just kick snare hat. Within that, there is, I do have some programming stuff that I like to do, but I'm not, you know, like I don't know my way around a Lindrum or an 808 or even Ableton that well for that matter. My bank account doesn't know a way around a Lindrum either, so. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But uh, all right, so number four, and this one is another bootleg. So the album is Chris Potter's uh, It's a Bootleg Live at the Knitting Factory. Would that be the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn? This would have been actually the Knitting Factory, uh, I believe, on Leonard Street um, in Tribeca. So this was the second location of the Knitting Factory that had three levels. There was a the upstairs room, a middle room, and a downstairs room, and they progressively got smaller as you went. Um, you know, like... I. I've played all three rooms a ton. I played with Ingrid Michelson in the basement for five people, you know, and then the next year I literally played with her for 200 people. And then, you know, she went on after that. Um, So it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's such a, it was, and still is, I don't know. I haven't been in New York for 10 years, so I don't know how much of an effect it has on the music scene. But at that point it was such a safe haven for uh, really experimental forward thinking music kind of yeah the way that new york fosters people to kind of push boundaries without the necessity of pop stardom yes hell yeah yeah all right so the album is chris potter's bootleg at the knitting factory in tribeca release years 2001 the artist is chris potter the song choice is high noon and huh, brian blade of course do you want to talk a little bit about, about yeah, it first sure. and then we'll go yeah so uh, this was recorded by my roommate my college roommate sam taylor he's a tenor player um, when I got to college in 2001, mini discs were all the rage. I don't know if many people, but essentially it's a tiny CD that fits inside of a square plastic casing. It made it really easy to record audio wherever you went. Um, and Sam, <laughs> I hope he doesn't mind me calling him out. It's fine. Sam got really good at feeding a microphone through his shirt sleeve and out you know, near his hand and he was able to, to record a bunch of shows. And, um, we never traded these around too much, but, but I would say this was a very, um, pivotal moment for me 
I had seen Brian Blade play when I was um, in 10th grade at the Saratoga Jazz Festival at a small side stage and was instantly captivated by his energy and his ability to, to steer the ship of the band in a very supportive but very commanding way. Um, Brian is incredible on recording, but for anyone who hasn't seen him live, it's it's a completely different um, addicting animal that that is undeniable. Um, and I especially loved bringing friends who were not into jazz to come see him play. And every single time every, anybody would see that, they would change their mind about jazz and want to learn more and want to learn more about Brian. And obviously he's played with a, you know, a, a wide array of pop artists and jazz artists. But um, this this record came out and, and yeah, like it, it was just a time when Brian was on fire. And, and incidentally, there's a Brian Blade Fellowship record that just came out called The Bootleg uh, or something of that sort recorded in D.C. right around this era um, when Brian was just pulverizing his kit and everybody in the audience is reacting. So you'll hear, I wasn't at the show, I wish I was, um, but you'll kind of hear people reacting to Brian playing off of Chris Potter um, and and yeah, it's it's fierce. It, it displays everything that he's capable of. love how he figured out how to hit a ride cymbal and make it sound like it has a compressor on it. Mm-hmm. and release this film. <laughs> he just, yeah, I mean, like, his ability to recognize where tension and release is and the music is unbelievable. And it shaped how I approach music over and over and over again. This, this recording especially too it's incredible how in sync this band was I think they had just come off recording a record recording this tune but it's insane how wide Brian's ears are like anything he plays you can tell he's pulled it from someone else in the band and then is steering it in a new direction alright number five and then maybe we'll try and get into these uh, sure. honorable mentions so the album is Grace the release year is 1994 the artist is Jeff Buckley and uh, the song choice is Mojo Pin, and the drummer is Matt Johnson, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you ever share a, a, a spot with him? Uh, we didn't, you know, we were both in Bedrock. I think you were across the hall from him, is that right? Yep. I'm yep. amazed we didn't run into each other more often there, because I was down the hall, on the second floor. No, I never shared a space with Matt, but um, we did share a tour together in 
2011, we both were playing on this Australian festival called Big Day Out, and it's a oh yeah, yeah, it's it's a um, a traveling festival, if you will. So all the same bands, the same lineup goes essentially the same lineup anyway, um, goes from city to city together. And um, Matt was playing with an artist named Angus and Julia Stone at the time, and um, I knew the bass player in the band, and I just complete. Oh, I guess I knew the keyboard player too, but I completely I fanboyed so hard, um, and and was just like, dude, I I've stolen so much from Grace. You have no idea, and you know I think I I got a hold of this record maybe my sophomore year in college or or junior year, so oh uh, three oh four, and um. I, I've stolen so much from this record. Like there are th- countless times on recording where I'll play a fill, and it was like, "Yep, that was Matt's. Stole that. <laughs> yeah, sorry." Um, <laughs> and every time I listen to the record too, I'm like, "Oh shit, there's another thing I stole that I didn't create myself." Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, to me, I, I would say the biggest thing I, I try and the, the two biggest things I try and approach the kit with are are try and sound like I weigh 400 pounds more than I weigh no matter what the dynamic is mm-hmm. and then the second thing is trying to play all my notes as wide as possible and I mean that because of watching Matt and listening to Matt it's all in time but really it's like extending that length of an eighth note or any subdivision that really enables you to to make that the widest most breathy note possible no matter what the subdivision and Matt is like an absolute master at this and I wish I was more so um it's so hard and it's I'm I'm constantly working on it so I did give you a, like a timed section of this song <laughs> if you don't yes, mind yes yes at 409 yep. yeah 409 he plays some incredible stuff and then there's just like this one fill that's like it's just undeniable and and it does that in my opinion it's yep. wide and and beautiful here we go Also, this is so hard to play. Well. drum sound too many drummers myself included would just push that like all those quarter note crashes we just push it all we just keep pushing and pushing and like and tightening up all those 16ths as we go and matt is just like no this is the widest shit you've ever heard yeah no i remember so he was in the show everyone go listen to that episode as well and he 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 kind of talked about how during that recording i don't want to say insecure 
listen to the episode because I forget the actual word he said, but he wasn't necessarily super confident while recording that record that he was the right person for the job um, in, in, in some respects. And again, I'm putting words in his mouth, but that was kind of the ethos he was portraying. And it's so crazy because now it's one of, I would say many drummers, it's in their top five of just the best studio recording of drums ever yeah um yeah and it's just the goalposts always move you know you're, you're never going to walk into any room feeling 100 like you got this ever but yeah, yeah it's an amazing feat by any drummer for sure yeah yeah he's it's he's one of the greatest yeah did he give a lot of influence on you on your your kind of choices with electronics with Troy Sivan when he was with saint vincent did you guys collaborate at all with that um uh, you know, tangentially, yes. Like there was, there were plenty of phone calls between one another, um, of like, "What are you using? This is what I'm doing. How are you doing it this way? Are you doing it this way?" Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at the time, um, Daniel Manceris was St. Vincent's MD, and Daniel's an old friend of mine from New York. The same thing. Like I dropped. I actually remember dropping by a couple St. Vincent rehearsals when it was just the band, and we were both kind of just like comparing and contrasting notes and. You know, Matt. Matt is always like at the forefront of whatever's going on electronically. Even though yep. he's such an incredible acoustic drummer, and I don't remember exactly what he was using, but it was some crazy box that was one of one, and some guy and like Denton built it for him in his basement, or you know something crazy like that. More so though, um, you know, after that tour um, with Sia, we as musicians, maybe not as humans all go through periods of kind of questioning what we want to do, questioning our approach to the music, questioning our career choice as being a musician. And um, I, I just felt like Matt was somebody I could reach out to for that, and I did. And I thought we were going to have like an hour lesson and just kind of talk a little bit about drums, and it turned into like a six-hour long full day of hanging out and and just talking about stories. And Matt really opened me up to like – breath work within the instrument and that has completely changed my approach to the to the instrument matt does like two hours of yoga a day i never have been a huge yogi but you know i was brought up with with a hippie family and you know paying attention to your breathing is always important and now because of matt every chorus every build up to a chorus is a breath out and every fill is is a breath in and it's like it's completely shaped uh, you know, how I approach song forms now. Yeah, I could definitely use some more Matt in my life for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, well, let's, yeah, I do want to get some of these uh, honorable mentions. So we did, we already talked about Elvin Jones, but I still don't think enough people talk about him. So let's do, uh, yeah, the, the is in, in capitals, the. the Elvin Jones fill of the century on Wayne Shorter's Speak No Evil. Yeah. And the song is Witch Hunt yep. at 123. So where'd you find this? Um, yeah, why does this thing mean so much to you? I mean, it's uh yeah, I guess a professor pointed it out to me one day in class and he was just like if there's ever a way to send someone off on a solo and and start their day off right, like this is the this is how you encourage intensity and um ferocity in music in the jazz setting. And I think I I you know, once you hear the fill like it's undeniable. It's like it's the hardest hitting shit ever. And it's like listening to a lot of metal music, listening to a lot of drummers who hit hard, listening to Rage, uh, you know, that taught me how to play hard. But like hearing this 
it was the first point that I was like, oh, we get to hit things that hard and make stuff sound that huge? Okay, great. Even that. Tension and release. Hell yeah. Two notes, or three notes, right? But, but like, pulling everybody back, it's, I could listen to that 40 times a day. It's so good. Well, now I might have to use the video for this episode, seeing you do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the promo. Yeah, absolutely. You have my full permission. <laughs> um, all right. So let's skip to uh, Thomas Headland, uh, Phoenix's yeah. live band. So is there any specific... Um, like a live album from Phoenix you want to talk about? There, I don't know. To my knowledge, there isn't a live album. Okay. Or if, if there is, I don't think he's on it. There's some live clips on the first record. I think that's before his time. Um, but Thomas has been the live band drummer with Phoenix, I think since Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix and mm-hmm. forward. I think so too. The first time I saw him play, again, this is like the live thing coming back to me. It's it's That dude hits harder than most people I know, or at least looks like he's hitting harder than most people I know. His notes are clear, right? All, all the all the credentials are there. He sounds like he weighs 400 pounds more than he does. He's mm-hmm. a small dude. Um, and and his note spacing is super wide. And like, man, he's hit me to so much cool music that's beyond Phoenix, like, you know, weird um, Somalian rock bands from the 70s and, and like lots of really great hip hop too. Like, his thing, his whole thing is like groove. He plays in a band called Kultaluna. That's like a, a Norwegian or Swedish uh, black metal band. Every time I see him play, it just makes me want to go practice even more. But, uh, you know, it's unfortunate because it, like your your chances of seeing him outside of seeing Phoenix are like finding old TV clips of them playing or finding some live footage. But generally speaking, they're not focusing on Thomas a whole lot. So you can't you get glimpses of them here and there. I specifically remember seeing them play on Conan O'Brien for Conan's like brief NBC stint. Specifically remember seeing Thomas and just being floored. And then Conan afterwards too being like, I don't know who that drummer is, but you should keep him around kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it yeah. I, I encourage everybody to go see him play. Stacy and I went to go see him play a few months ago and it was, it's always, always a treat. Yeah, and I know this has nothing to do with his playing, but I also really appreciate Thomas's aesthetic. Um, everything's flat, and it's all the same level, and it's just, it looks cool. It looks yeah. like he's a mad scientist over his drums. Yeah, I love, I mean, I've tried to position my drums that way because of him, and... Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't and work doesn't for he, me, but... doesn't he usually play with, like, an acrylic, like a clear acrylic kit? Yeah. Or, that's, yep. what I th- that's what I picture when I think of Thomas. Yeah. I mean, he's an athlete. Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. know if he's still doing this, but I remember... I went and saw them in Europe a couple of times and, and he, we'd hang out for, you know, an hour after the show. And then he was like, yeah, I'm going to the gym or I'm going to run five miles now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like there back in the day, he would do these moves where he would like bend backwards over the back of the throne fully and then come back and hit beat one, you know, five or six times in a row. And I'm like, dude, I can't do a sit up. Are you kidding me? That's in the middle of a show every night like that. 
Dave Vilich is not going to like that. No, no, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, last one. Uh, yeah. Bernard Purdy. It's funny. Me and my friends were just, I had a, uh, the guitarist in one of my bands sent me a, a video of Purdy this morning being like, have you heard of this guy? He's so amazing. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, uh, he's great. So Bernard Purdy uh, on Aretha, uh, Aretha Franklin live at the Fillmore West. Yeah. So is that, that's an album I could find right now? Yeah, that that is a that's a an album that's out there that's released. Uh, it is a double. Initially, it was a double album, and I'm totally blanking on who the other artist was. But it's the same band for both. Okay. I believe Bernard Purdy was the MD on the gig as well. Um, uh, did I give you a track? I mean, um, we don't I even have you, to play anything. But no, let's 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 play something. But no, you didn't give me a track. But I have it all up right now. If you yeah, want to. Um, yeah, we got um, respect. Love the one you're with. Bridge over troubled water. Yeah, Elder love Rigby. the one you're with. Okay. Yeah, that one. That's that's great. That's cool because it's like a you know it's a Crosby, Stills, Nash song, or maybe it's not, and they covered Aretha. But I'm assuming it was out, and Aretha covered them. I can tell that hi hat work right away. It's pretty immediately, right? Hi hat. Oh. I can hear his smile too yeah and then just into this pre just tease that snare drum yeah I mean, and yeah. I will say too, like uh, the last tour I just did was with Tegan and Sarah, and um, we hadn't played the Fillmore, or I hadn't played the Fillmore at all in, in my time, uh, the Fillmore West in San Francisco, where mm-hmm. this was recorded. And I've spent so much time with this record. It was so fun to finally get to play in that room and, and just feel, you know, anything close to this is, yeah, it's so sure. magical. He is so in sync. Like his his fills line up exactly with what she's doing. They're like yeah, they're matching. He's so good. Yeah, he's one of those drummers that can fill over a, a vocal, like in Kid Charlemagne, all that stuff, and it just still sounds like it works. It doesn't get in the way for some yeah. weird reason. Um, all right, well, that's your top seven or eight. We went a little <laughs> bit overboard. This is, yeah, this is sure. good. Um, but yeah, do a little self promotion. Are you going back out with Tegan and Sarah? What's 2023 looking like? Talk about your woodworking because most drummers obviously appreciate the kind of work you do so floor is yours oh man okay um i run a business called chris gow design it's a furniture business we build uh custom furniture for um you know like high-end home goods and um and also a lot of recording studio furniture as well i operate that shop here in cypress park where i also have my drum room and the biggest benefit of that is that i can play my drums whenever i want and also uh, I tend to record a lot of film and TV scores in the big warehouse room. It's about a 3,000 square foot space, so it sounds really great for theatrical music. Um, I'm recording right now. We're doing Superman and Lois season three in there, and I did uh, this HBO show called Station Eleven in there. It suits itself really well for either you know bombastic orchestral toms for like action sequence fight scenes. Or it, it also sounds really great for if something needs to replicate 
like mid-60s bebop or funk era. I put two mics up close, but the reverb of the room makes it sound great. So I'm, I'm really fortunate to kind of have this, this playground to uh, play in here. Um, so, so at the moment, I think there's going to there probably be some Tegan and Sarah dates later this year. Um, you know, the, the nature of my career is, is such that I, most of my gigs come last minute without rehearsal uh, on the fly for whatever reason, I've become a, a, a guy that gets called to do things like that. And I love it. It's honestly my favorite and it enables me to have the wood shop functioning and it enables me to, to play whenever I need to. So, um, it's a, it's a really great balance of both worlds. So yeah, just kind of waiting to see what, what crops up this year. Um, spent most of last year as a COVID alternate for other artists needing to have a set memorized and didn't actually go out and play with anybody. But I was I was ready to go for Billie Eilish for three months and was ready to go for AJR to sub for our friend uh, Chris Berry for a while. So uh, whatever comes, I'm ready for it. Hell yeah. Well, if you get COVID, call Adam. He will learn all your shit. <laughs> yep. Um, four hours notice. Even less. <laughs> I did it for Elias Mallon in three hours once, so... And you did some stuff with LP too last minute, right? Yeah, I mean, I've I've done I've subbed with her quite a few times now, and um, one or two of them might have been sickness related, I think. <laughs> At oh, this geez. point, yeah. Well, Adam, you're an incredible drummer, man. Um, Thank you. I look up to your playing so much, dude, and you. You're just a great guy. Um, Likewise, dude. Come on. So. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. But um, I'll let you go, dude. But yeah, let's go on a on a walk soon. I will see you soon. And and yeah, great insight, man. Thanks for thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye!